You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And we believed that our participation in the public school system was directly related to loving our neighbors. And so if we could opt in at all, then we absolutely wanted to. Uh, so we did. We opted in. And um, I would say that um, one of the big things that helped us to be able to say yes to the public schools was uh, that we believed that worldview came from your home. Your worldview and your values came from your home. And I think that that's what everyone believes in the education debate. But I don't know that the public school parent always gets credit for that perspective. Uh, we did not think that it was a simple matter of just sending them off to get educated and then everything would sort of fall into play. The church would pick up the, the slack on whatever they needed to get for their Christian worldview. Jeff and I are um, nerdy people who like to learn. And so our children's love of learning in all likelihood, or in fact, I hope, came from the ethos that was in our home. And we knew that that would be a factor in the way that they inhabited a public school space. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 573 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. And that was a little clip from a Good Faith Debates video that was sent to me here, oh, maybe a week and a half, two weeks ago by my friend and neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. A Good Faith Debates, as they call it, put on by the Gospel Coalition. Should Christian parents send their children to public schools? Featuring Jen Wilkin and Jonathan Pennington. We'll be talking more about that Good Faith Debates segment here in a bit in this episode. Also, some interesting developments with regards to January 6th, some of the footage that has been aired after being given to Fox News commentator, TV host, Tucker Carlson. I do want to comment on the latest there. I have some thoughts. I want to share them with you. But before we get into either of those two things, I want to jump back into Exodus as we've been reading through Exodus, I think it's been beneficial to me. I think it's been encouraging to me. I think that it can be encouraging to you to be reminded of these things. And it's one of the interesting facts of the Old Testament in particular is that God's people are constantly needing to be reminded of where they've come from, where they're going to, why are they here? What are they supposed to be about? Who is God and what has he done and what is he doing and what will he do? God's people are constantly needing to be reminded. And that's because we're forgetful. That's because we get distracted. And that's because we get a benefit from being reminded. So without further ado, I'm going to pick back up where we left off in last episode and read for you Exodus chapter 20 and 21. Starting from the top. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself 
a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And Yahweh said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, 
she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Amen. And that's an odd place to stop, I grant. If you're thinking, yeah, that's weird. Sure, it is. Now, is that the fault of Exodus? Or is that the fault of us? 
is that our lack that this would seem an unusual thing to pair with what I'm going to talk about next? Or is it actually something that we should be very glad for, that we would pair these things together and gain some new insight into the character of God, into what is and is not justice, and into what we regard as being fair? I think that it's a happy little accident, as Bob Ross would say, if this happens to be where we're at next in Exodus, not pre-planned, not premeditated, not by me anyways. And also, we're going to be talking about public education and homeschooling. I, myself, having been homeschooled from half of kindergarten, half of first grade, the first half of each of those grades being in Christian schools in Western Montana, where I grew up partly. Part of where I grew up was Western Montana. Part of where I grew up and was born originally was Eastern Montana. Then we moved to Southern Ohio when I was 10. I moved back to Montana with my wife and my four oldest sons when I was 25. We homeschool our, not all eight, because the youngest is one, and the next up is four. But we homeschool six of our kids, the kids that are of schooling age right now. And so one of the things that I have come to accept about myself and about other homeschoolers is that we typically, we typically, having been homeschooled in contrast to being public schooled, we typically are more comfortable with being ourselves. We're typically more comfortable with whatever is individual and particular about us. And I think also, for the most part, we're typically more accepting, actually, of other people being themselves with some stipulations. And the stipulations go as follow. In my experience, because the way I was homeschooled, the reason I was homeschooled, the kinds of homeschoolers that I grew up associating with, the kinds of homeschoolers I hope my sons are and their friends are, are first and foremost interested in how do we honor God with upbringing and training? You know, in listening to this back and forth between Jen Wilkins and Jonathan Pennington that the Gospel Coalition put out, it's one of the things I really appreciated having been brought up by Jonathan Pennington. He says in his opening remarks as he's explaining his stance on the education question as a pastor, as a middle-aged man whose own children were homeschooled and private schooled. Now they're pretty much all adults. He says, we've got to consider what the point of education is. Why do we want our children to get a good education? What is a good education? What is the point of education? If the point of education is the formation of character and it's inculcating virtue in a child so that when they are older, they do not depart from virtue and the fear of the Lord. That makes a huge, huge difference on what we consider to be a good education or not a good education. In contrast to someone who says that a good education is toward the end of getting a profitable job when you're an adult, having a profitable career when you grow up, being well-liked and accepted by your peers and by your culture and by society. 
if the point of a good education is to please men, first and foremost, that they would be very impressed by you, then you may think that Harvard or Yale or MIT are the cream of the crop. That is the goal. That is the gold prize, the blue ribbon and the cash award goes to the one who can get their kid into Harvard or Yale or Cambridge or Princeton or Oxford or what have you. You go to one of those schools, depending on what you're hoping to do for work, and you're going to be set. You're going to not lack for job opportunities. They're going to make sure that you get plugged in, you get networked, you will have doors opened for you. But on the other hand, if you say the point of a good education is to please God first and foremost, whether it pleases man is of secondary importance, we want to first and foremost please God. Well, that reframes every individual decision. It doesn't just reframe the macro decision of homeschooling versus public schooling versus private schooling. It also reframes every individual decision within those larger choices. And so kudos to Jonathan Pennington for going there, for bringing that up. But I think if the premise is first and foremost, we want to please God, and then men being impressed or pleased is a bonus, if it happens, cool. If it doesn't, eh, whatever. Life goes on. I think when we have a mindset of, I want to please God first, we're not going to balk at reading Exodus 20 and 21 because some people might think that it's weird. We're going to say first and foremost, does that please God that we would consider that these are the laws that he gave to Israel and that this, um, this says something about his character, which has not changed. It does say something about the character of his people, sure, but if that's the first place we go and then we stop and we think this is irrelevant because we're not Israel, we've really missed the point of God's word. And I don't think that we're going to handle it properly moving forward. We might know it, but we won't understand it. We might see it, but we won't perceive it. We won't appreciate the riches that are here, even in a passage like Exodus 20 to 21. If our first thought is, is this going to curry favor? Is this going to be considered honorable in the sight of all for me to read this out loud on a podcast? If that's our first and foremost question, well, then in our day, especially, we're probably not going to read the regulations on slavery. <laughs> we're probably not. We're probably not going to get into the minutia of circumstantial incidents. You know, if the ox has never been known to gore anybody before, well then, okay, that's one thing. But if the ox has been known to gore people and other animals, then, you know, that changes it. Point being, for the Christian, no less than for ancient Israel, there is a challenge to think first and foremost about what pleases God. What does God call us to? Even when the people around us, other of God's people professing faith disapprove, even when they say, hmm, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. The challenge is to keep the main thing the main thing. First things first. What is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it, but it's not the same thing. 
to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The second is not the first and greatest. It's like it. It's very closely related. It's very much connected, but they are distinct. And if you get them in reverse order, well, then I think it affects how many kids you have, when you have them, when you get married, who you get married to, what you do for a living, how you approach your work, where you go to church, how you participate, whether you participate in church, when you have children, how you educate your children, when you get invited to participate in a good faith debate, what your argument is, what is the nature of your argument even. But I look at Exodus 20 through 21 here, and I want actually for us to get comfortable with the oddness of these things being talked about back to back. I want us to get comfortable with that awkwardness because I think that awkwardness is something of a canary in the coal mine. It is the tell. That awkwardness is to say that we're not accustomed to these things being dealt with together, that we would talk about slavery being regulated instead of abolished by God. We would talk about very particular specific instructions that govern particular situations differently based on the circumstances. It's a kind of laziness, and I think it's a kind of cowardice, and I think it's a kind of irreverence that we so often dismiss and ignore what is written in the first five books of the Bible. I think it's not good. It is not good what we are doing because these are instructive, not always necessarily to what we are under in terms of ceremony, ritual, but insofar as these speak to the character of God and the character of his promises, and insofar as we read in the New Testament that the character of his promises is unchangeable because his character is unchangeable, to neglect this is to miss out on being made complete. All scripture is breathed out by God. Useful for four things, not just one. And by the way, none of those four things, not a one of them, zero-fourths is entertainment. If it's occasionally the case that you're reading and you're amused by something and you are entertained by something that's in the text, great, but that's not the point. Remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Instruction under righteousness, correction, reproof, these things, these words, these lessons, these commands and prohibitions and instructions are given that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. You're not under the law, but insofar as you would want to know God, you should care what he told his people so that you're not making false claims as to what he would and wouldn't condone, support, allow, permit, forbid. You don't want to speak out of turn and embarrass yourself. In fact, that's what we're told. That's what Paul tells to Timothy, his disciple in the New Testament. Study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed. You don't want to be embarrassed saying something that is just silly and easily disproven. So you study to show yourself an approved workman. This is also part of the point of education. A good education sees us requiring our children to study 
to show themselves, that is to demonstrate, that is to be displayed for onlookers to observe, approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. How many of the Christians involved in this debate about education in America, what Christians should pursue, embrace, tolerate, affirm, oppose in the way of education for children in the U.S., how many people participating in these debates are going back to what Paul told Timothy and using that as an anchor point? Study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Study. Okay, so non-schooling is out. You do need to study. You should study. You're told to study. Apply yourself. Apply your attention to study. Why? So that you can demonstrate, so that you can show yourself, so that you can act and speak in a way that demonstrates that you have knowledge and understanding. An approved workman. What is an approved workman? You know, I think of my work in oil and gas and how there are dangerous jobs. And by dangerous jobs, I mean certain tasks are more dangerous than others because the risk of injury is greater. The exposure to hazards is greater. And those certain types of tasks, the industry, companies, regulatory bodies, have decided require permits. And when you need a permit to do the work, there are procedures and there are checklists and things you've got to fill out and you've got to do an assessment. And that assessment needs to be shared with management and they need to read it and sign off on it. And if they haven't signed off on it, then you can't do the work, which is to say you are not permitted, which is to say you are not approved to do the work because you are not safe to do it. You can't do it safely. It's too dangerous. So I read this and I think, based on my familiarity, my context, working in oil and gas for coming up on 11 years now, I think to myself, an approved workman is somebody who has a permit. They're permitted to do this work. Who is permitting them? Who is approving them? Whose approval do we want? More to the point. That's what I'm really trying to get at here. Whose approval are we seeking? In Galatians, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, he says in chapter 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Mic drop. That's pretty open shut, ladies and gentlemen. This is not to say that there's a contradiction. There might be an apparent contradiction, but there's a tension rather than a contradiction that we are called to do what is honorable in the sight of all, but within reason, only to a certain point. And the reason we're doing what is honorable in the sight of all, when we can, when that is possible, is because first and foremost, we want God's approval. But when the two contradict, when there is a, not just tension, but there is a contradiction, what man wants us to do to get their approval is opposite, mutually exclusive to what God wants us to do to get his approval, then you can't do what is honorable in the sight of all. And you must obey God rather than men. 
So I look at Exodus 20 through 21, and I look at Moses bringing the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, and it's a lot of you shall, you shall not. You shall. This is contractual language. Not you may, you may not. It's up to you. No, you shall. You will do this. You will not do this. You are not approved to do this. You are approved. In fact, you're required to do this other thing. You will and you won't because God is the authority. This is his people. He is their God. He has delivered them. He has ransomed them. And you say, well, but what is all this about slavery? That's not fair. It's fair if God says it's fair. When God didn't prohibit it, who are you to say that you are more fair, you are more just than God is? But what does God do? He regulates it. And you say, well, that's not right. He shouldn't have regulated it. He should have abolished it. And I would say, consider how he regulated it in the ways that he did, where he did. Your assumptions about slavery may not be correct. And actually, the disturbing truth is, if you read somebody like John Taylor Gatto, if you read about the history of compulsory schooling in the United States, if you read about the history of the American public education system, where it came from, who developed it, who instituted it here, the uncomfortable fact is that a kind of slavery exists, even if we don't call it that. There's a kind of mental and emotional slavery, which hides in plain sight, and which we don't realize, many of us, most of us, grips the collective consciousness and conscience of the American people, and by extension, much of the world, through American public schooling. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. And yet, what is it that is joked about frequently for those who are big-time proponents of public schooling, even for those who are apologists for homeschooling? There's a kind of tacit admission that that's difficult and we don't want to do it. Is that no longer in effect because, well, that was Israel and that was the Old Testament and we're under grace now. We're not under law. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land. What happens when you send your kids off to a public school on the basis of a lack of respect for fathers and mothers? Defining down what is expected of mothers and fathers, what is expected of children, how they relate to their mothers and their fathers. You know, why is it? Tell me this, why is it that we accept when some parent says, well, you know, I just don't think it would work out for me to homeschool my kids because my kids don't listen to me. And they claim to Christianity and yet they have avoided requiring obedience of their children, requiring their children to respect them. They've sidestepped that. They've opted out of disciplining their children and a lot of people pastors, a lot of ministry leaders, a lot of Christian content creation outlets like TGC, like popular Christian bookstores say, oh yeah, that's funny. That's funny. It's not funny, actually. That's something you should repent of. That's a wicked 
and irresponsible and negligent attitude, you are not to be let off the hook about that. You know, there's a comment that Jen Wilkins makes at one point, and she is arguing that we should not criticize, at least don't criticize parents who send their kids to public schools. But yet she often throughout this hour or so good faith debates video criticizes those who are in favor of homeschooling, private schooling, implying that there is something untoward about a lot of folks who argue for homeschooling and who criticize public education. She says it's misinformation. A lot of what's circulating about what's being taught in the public schools, it's misinformation. No, that's not being taught. But then at the same time, she says, I want my kids to be taught by a lot of non-Christians. I want them to embrace multiculturalism and pluralism. I want them to be rubbing shoulders with kids who are coming from broken homes and who are not being disciplined. I want them to be on class projects with kids who aren't going to try at all because their parents don't require that of them. I want my kids to go to public school and I don't want homeschooling parents or private schooling parents to criticize me for that decision or to criticize other parents in America who send their kids to public school. And I don't want Christians to criticize public school teachers or administrators or the system itself because that's just not helpful. We sent, she says, we sent our kids to public school because we wanted them to get a good education. It's a world-class education. Now, we had a really good school close by. Our school is the exception, but actually most most schools are like that. And it's just a few, just a few bad apples here and there. And you know, even if you can't send your kids into the schools, we should support the public schools. Because why? Because non-Christian kids are in there. And I say, as I was commenting to my neighbor two houses down last night, how would it be if this were a Muslim-majority country and the state-run schools were madrasas, Muslim schools, teaching the Quran, teaching Sharia? And we said, well, there's non-Christians in the madrasa. And so we should support the madrasa and we should send our kids to the madrasa. We should send our kids to the imam so that our kids can rub shoulders with non-Christians. Because how fair would it be? I mean, what would that do to the Muslim children and the Muslim parents and the Muslim teachers and the Muslim school administrators if we weren't sending our kids into the Muslim schools? Is that the way that we would argue? Is that what we encourage missionaries when we send missionaries to countries where there are a lot of Muslims? Is that what we encourage our missionaries to do? To send their kids to Muslims to be trained and to be taught, to be disciplined? Is that what we do? And you might say, well, Garrett, that's not fair. That's That's not what the public schools in the U.S. are like. And I say, oh, but it is actually. It just looks different. It's a different worldview, but it's no less hostile to Christianity. It just fights Christianity in a different way in a very scientific way, in a very psychological way, in a very procedural way, in a very social way. And even the kind of argument that's being made about we need to send our kids into these schools to be socialized, you know what I think it really is? I think we need to send our kids into the schools in these parents' minds 
in Jen Wilkins' mind because we want to gain the approval of the parents who are sending their kids into the public schools, but they don't know Christ. We want to gain their approval, and we're saying that that is us keeping a good testimony. And it doesn't follow. I think a good faith debate where you have two people agreeing that we should lay off the public school criticism, particularly where it would hurt the feelings of professing Christian parents who are sending their kids into the public schools. I think that that is not my idea of a good faith debate. I think that the outcome of that debate was preordained by the folks at TGC because there's certain kinds of arguments that they regard as completely outside of the Overton window. Yes, they got a guy in Jonathan Pennington who homeschooled his own kids and then sent them to private school. And Jen Wilkins begrudgingly admits that they know people who've been homeschooled who are great. They're super well-adjusted, wonderful people, and they love them very much. But then she says it in the way that I've, for my whole life, my whole life growing up, I've heard this in a way that is begrudgingly and patronizingly and condescendingly implying that that's more the exception than the rule, or like that's a recent development. It might be a recent development that you just figured it out, but there's this all too common quality to what she's articulating that she sees kids in homeschool environments sometimes where you think, man, somebody should get them out of there. Somebody should have an intervention. They're not being properly taken care of. They're not being loved or looked after. They're being abused or neglected. And I've heard that again, also my entire life. Can kids be mistreated in a homeschool environment? Yes, because people are people. But that is to say, people are people, not just in a homeschool situation. They're also people in a private school situation or a public school situation. And so it's being mentioned selectively with regards to homeschoolers as though that's a particular problem to home education or as though for human history up to the present, the default assumption has been mothers and fathers send their kids to somebody else to train them for eight hours a day. That has not been the default position for most of human history. That's a relatively recent innovation that, again, I think goes back to slavery, actually, and wanting to make more obedient servants of the state and the progressive agenda all of America's youth, requiring that compulsory schooling to the end of indoctrinating little kids in progressivism, in secular humanism, in socialism. But I look at You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. It's somewhat amusing to me how many of the items here are specific and somewhat odd to us in our context. It's like, well, my neighbor doesn't have an ox or a donkey or a male servant or a female servant. Yeah, but does he have a house? Does he have a wife? Does he have anything? Anything that you would covet? You know, there was a a brief moment of tension last night at the dinner table when some computer cables were in the middle of the table. And one of my sons, and I won't say who, one of them picked up one of these computer cables and he was just examining it, holding it up. And his brother, and I won't say who, tried to just grab it out of his hands because he was going to clear the table and put it away. And for a brief moment, 
two, three, four seconds, they're both just eyeing each other with a kind of hostility as they are tugging each on their end of this computer cable. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop, 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 stop. That is totally unnecessary. You guys, you don't even care about that cable. Now it's just the principle of the thing. Because he has it and you wanted it. Or you had it and he's trying to take it from you. And if I don't intervene right now, this is going to escalate. Because I see the look in your guys' eyes. Stop it. Both of you. Stop it. This is ridiculous. Neither of you care about that computer cable. Now it's the principle of the thing. That he had it and you wanted it. Or you had it and he was trying to take it from you. Stop it. Because here's the thing. Coveting what belongs to your neighbor. It really almost doesn't matter what it is. You know, watch five and six-year-olds play with toys. If they haven't been taught to share, you will, in short order, within a couple of short minutes, find that one of the kids wasn't playing with half of those toys and is playing with one little dump truck in the sand over there. And the instant the other kid goes to pick up a toy that he was even thinking about playing with next, oh, buddy, I was playing with that. No, you weren't. Oh, yes, I was. I was about to. No, you weren't. You only care about it because he picked it up. Because this is about something deeper than that toy. This is about you versus him. And here's what I know. I know that the public education system is not going to make the kind of argument that needs to be made about why you don't fight over a computer cable or a dump truck toy or whatever. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You can watch those two commandments be broken with regularity when two kids are fighting over a toy. Almost any two kids, (laughs) you will hear hyperbole, exaggeration, distorting of the facts, a shaping and spinning of the narrative. Nobody has to teach a little five-year-old how to do that. They know instinctively because it comes from the heart. They want what they want. The kind of argument, if that's going to be checked, if it's going to be stopped in a public education environment in America, the kind of argument that's going to be made is not, you shall not, because God said, don't. And yet that's very important. The reason why we would stop it is very important. Now, Jen Wilkins would say, Yeah, but my kids come home and then they tell me everything that happened over the course of eight hours today, and then we parent them through it. And I would say, no, they don't. No, you don't. They're not telling you everything that happened over the course of eight hours today. You're not parenting them through all of that. You know what would be parenting them through all of that is if instead of being a Bible teacher, getting up on stage behind a pulpit and preaching and teaching, which I have some thoughts on because... I have studied to show myself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I have some thoughts on you jumping over what Paul says about, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, she is to keep silent as in all the churches. If she has a question, she can ask her husband when she gets home. She should be focused on loving her husband and her children well. And older women should be teaching her that. And if the older women are not teaching the younger women that, and if the men involved are saying, well, it's, it's whatever, What do you do? Because they're more concerned with getting the approval of the godless, then that is not serving Christ. It's just flat not. Don't be deceived, Paul writes in Galatians 6, 7. God is not mocked for whatever one sows. 
that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here's my big problem with the kind of argument that's made, the kind of argument that's made about why Christian parents in America should send their kids to public school. They say, like Jen Wilkins, they're getting a world-class education. No, they're not. No, they're not. It's for the good of the community. You know what's for the good of the community when we homeschool our kids and they go up and down the block offering to shovel people's driveways who are disabled and alone. They live by themselves and their kids don't come to visit them and they're elderly. And next thing I know, my wife is telling me that there's this app that she follows for our neighborhood where people we don't know, complete strangers are commenting back and forth with each other about these sweet young men who just showed up to check on their neighbor and to shovel his driveway without being asked and how that just brightened their day. And now it's brightened the days of the entire neighborhood. And I'm not saying that somebody who sends their kids to public school can't have that happen, but again, the reasons, the motives, the purpose is that First and foremost, because we want God's approval, or is it first and foremost because we want the approval of men? I say if we're following first and foremost to get God's approval, and then man's approval is a bonus, you're much more in line with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount regarding how we do our good works. When you fast, for instance, Matthew 6, 16. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here's the point. We are trying to please God, not in a legalistic way, but we are trying to please God. And we should prefer to do so as discreetly, as privately as possible. So that if people happen to find out, but that's not what you were going for, they'll say, wow, that's really great. If you can please God better by doing it publicly, great. But that's not a good argument for public education because it's not a good education, particularly where the formation of character is concerned. And you say, well, Garrett, you know, you, your kids go all over the neighborhood and they're shoveling people's sidewalks and driveways, and mowing people's yards, and they're interacting with strangers. And what if one of those strangers you know, starts talking with them about critical race theory, or wokeism, or gender theory? Well, what are you going to do then? And I say, we're doing it, because I'm talking with my kids about those things at home. And I don't want my kids to be dependent. Here's, here's another piece of it. When Paul writes in Thessalonians, that we should aspire to live quiet lives, minding our own affairs, working with our hands, that we might walk properly before outsiders, being dependent on no one. Public education is the opposite, and you're teaching your children to be dependent on others by you setting the example of depending on others to teach your kids. It's the opposite. You want to walk properly before outsiders, aspire to live a quiet life working with your hands, minding your own affairs, 
If your kids' education is not your own affairs, then I don't know what is. Minding your own affairs, being dependent on no one, that means you are not depending on the public education system. You're not depending on those public school administrators or the school board or the public school teacher. You're definitely not going to depend on the Department of Education. You're definitely not going to depend on the educrats, the people with master's degrees who think that they are experts on your child and you're just an idiot. You send your kids to them and what kind of honor your father and mother are your children going to be taught by that person, that man, that woman who thinks they know so much more than you do and you don't know what's best for your child, but they do. The kind of education your kids are going to receive from that person, from that educrat, is going to be honor me because I have a master's degree. Your parents don't know anything. In fact, you don't need to talk with your parents about changing your gender, using different preferred pronouns, experimenting sexually with your classmates. You don't need to tell them about this, 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 because it might upset them and then they might embarrass you. Not father knows best. The person with a master's degree in education knows best. I want to go ahead and play an audio clip for you. This from Ronald Reagan's 1983 Evil Empire speech to the National Association of Evangelicals at the height of the Cold War and the Soviet-Afghan War. This is going to be about four and a half minutes, so settle in, listen up. If you haven't heard it before, or if it's been a long time since you've heard it, I want to tie this in with the whole business from Exodus and the good faith debates that TGC recently posted. Here is cut to Ronald Reagan, 1983. Take a listen. Association of Evangelicals community from coast to coast in our great land deeply appreciates and values his love for the truth of the Bible and his commitment to its great moral values. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. number of years ago, I heard a young father, a very prominent young man in the entertainment world, addressing a tremendous gathering in California. It was during the time of the Cold War, and communism and our own way of life were very much in people's minds, and he was speaking to that subject. And suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God. There were thousands of young people in that audience. They came to their feet with shouts of joy. They had instantly recognized the profound truth in what he had said. With regard to the physical and the soul, 
and what was truly important. Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Pray they will discover the joy of knowing God. But until they do, let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. It was C.S. Lewis who in his unforgettable screw tape letters wrote, the greatest evil is not done now in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not even done in concentration camps and labor camps. In those, we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clear, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Well, because these quiet men do not raise their voices, because they sometimes speak in soothing tones of brotherhood and peace, because like other dictators before them, they're always making their final territorial demand, some would have us accept them at their word and accommodate ourselves to their aggressive impulses. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom. So I urge you to speak out against those who would place the United States in a position of military and moral inferiority. You know, I've always believed that old screw tape reserved his best efforts for those of you in the church. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. Well said. Well said. I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil, he said. That was a remarkably brave thing to say to the National Association of Evangelicals. That was a remarkably brave thing to say to them, not least because it has always been the case that there are moderates who want to say peace, peace when there is no peace. There is a kind of pride and stubbornness to claiming objectivity all the while saying, if there's a conflict, all parties are equally at fault. To ignore circumstances. Going back to Exodus. No, we're not under the law in the sense that we are trying to keep the law so that we are righteous, so that we save ourselves. But look at the circumstances where God says there should be restitution and when he says They can just split the animal. So there's this here in Exodus 21. 
28 through 32 about if an ox, it's not even you personally, it's an ox that you own, goring a man or woman to death, kill the ox, don't eat it. And if it had never behaved that way before, it's not the owner's fault. The ox was being an ox. The animal was being an animal. But verse 29, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. Put to death, as in you could have done something about this and you didn't. And it's your fault. It is your fault. You knew that this was a dangerous animal and you didn't control it. You didn't stop it. You didn't prevent this when you so easily could have. You should have put that animal to death. This ox has been accustomed to behave this way in the past. You knew it. And somebody says, grace, grace, and peace, peace. And it's just as much the fault of the man or woman who got gored to death as it is the owner of the ox. No, no, that's unjust. Or we say, grace, grace, peace, peace. It's not loving to point to the carnage caused by a system or a philosophy or a worldview that has caused so much destruction. It's not fair to criticize when one in 10 American teenagers attempted suicide in recent years that we know of, according to the CDC's own numbers. And those, those numbers might be far lower than is actually the case. You know, there was a not the bee post up just yesterday. Edward Teach, probably not his real name, posted this. Japan just found out they actually have 7,000 more islands than they thought. You think, man, that's a lot of islands to undercount. Do you know how many islands Japan thought it had and has thought it had since a 1987 report by Japan's Coast Guard? 6,852. They recently figured out that they have 14,125, thanks to digital mapping by the Geospatial Information Authority of Japan, GSI. That is to say, they have twice as many islands as they have thought since 1987, since the year my wife was born. If a country like Japan can undercount by half the number of islands they have, and keep those stats on the books since the late 80s, just four years after Ronald Reagan delivered this speech to the NAE. I dare say the CDC's numbers might be a bit low. Possibly. But what happens when we believe that the state is all-powerful and should be all-powerful and that we should send even our children to the state to be indoctrinated by the state in gender theory, critical race theory, all manner of godlessness and immorality, that we as parents are the ones who are the threat. Even as we read in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Our children are being taught to not honor their father and mother. They're being taught that they can't trust their father and their mother. Not with the most important questions. Your parents don't know anything. They don't understand. They're on the wrong side of history. We'll tell you how it really is, because we have a master's degree in education. We're the experts. Trust the experts. You know what? Sometimes the experts miscount and the figure is actually double, even with something as important as the number of islands that belong to your country. Should Christian parents send their children to public schools? 
I would say no. Would I say that you're sinning if you do? I would say you might be having a sinful attitude about your children's education and about life in general. You might be. That's a possibility. You might be sinning in how you homeschool them too, sure. But homeschooling is what you make it. And public schooling is not what you make it. It's not. It is not in your domain to overhaul the public schools. And if they're bad, all the worse that they are, you can't just say, well, the worse they get, the more I should support them so that they get better. That's been tried for a hundred years and it's going one direction. Sometimes it slows. Sometimes you don't know what's up. But if you're homeschooling, then you do. And homeschooling is what you make it. Now, before we run out of time here, I want to talk briefly about a piece published yesterday also by Ryan Saavedra over at the Daily Wire. Tucker Carlson releases January 6th footage that raises new questions. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh man, this is uncomfortable. It was one thing to talk about the Ten Commandments and God regulating rather than prohibiting slavery outright. It was one thing for you to talk about homeschooling and public schooling. Now you're going to talk about January 6th? Come on. I'm going to play clip three here, and I want you to take a listen. This won't be a long clip, but it's an important clip. Then I have some thoughts. Take a listen. If there's one takeaway from the corpus of footage that we spent three weeks looking at, it's that the January 6th committee lied. Its members are liars. And as the result of those lies, core civil liberties in this country were eroded. People went to prison. They're in prison as of right now unjustly. So those lies had consequences. So you have to ask yourself, whatever happened to the members of the January 6th committee? These liars who hurt people and the country. Well, let's see. Adam Schiff is running for Senate. Adam Kinzinger got a job at CNN. Liz Cheney somehow wound up a professor at the University of Virginia, the August University of Virginia. They're all still there. Benny Thompson, ooh, listen to his wisdom. But they're liars. And above all, this video proves it. Here's another installment. One of the enduring mysteries of January 6th is the role that intelligence and law enforcement agencies played in the events of that day. We know there was some number of undercover federal agents in the crowd at the Capitol. Officials have since admitted that under oath. But what exactly were they doing there? The January 6th committee worked hard to hide the answer to that question. We do know from contemporaneous videotape that a mysterious figure called Ray Epps encouraged the crowd to go into the Capitol. For some reason, Epps has never been indicted for that. But there's no question he did it. We need to go into the Capitol! Under public pressure, the January 6th committee finally interviewed Ray Epps. Epps told the committee that he never entered the Capitol and therefore never committed a crime. His text messages showed that at 2.12 p.m., he boasted to his nephew that he had, quote, orchestrated the protests at the Capitol. He admitted he helped get people there. Yet, curiously, congressional Democrats consider Ray Epps an ally, not an insurrectionist. Tonight, we can tell you that at the very least, Ray Epps lied in his sworn testimony to the January 6th committee. Epps testified that when he sent the text messages to his nephew, he had already left the Capitol grounds to return to his hotel room. That is not true. The surveillance footage we found shows that, in fact, Ray Epps remained at the Capitol for at least another half an hour. You're seeing that on your screen now. 
What was Epps doing there? We can't say, but we do know that he lied to investigators. The January 6th committee likely knew this too. Democrats had access to the same tape, yet they defended Ray Epps. No honest investigation would do that. But the point of the January 6th committee was never to investigate anything. The point was to stage a made-for-TV show trial. From the opening moments, the tone of the hearings was almost comically overheated and polemical. There was not a tragedy in American history that Democrats didn't liken to the protests of January 6th. I'm from a part of the country where people justify the actions of slavery, the Ku Klux Klan, and lynching. How staged and fraudulent was the work of the January 6th committee? Democrats hired a Good Morning America producer called James Goldston to dramatize the footage they released. They even dubbed in audio to make the pictures more sensational, as in a docudrama. The networks carried it all live as if it were real. Okay, cut. <clears throat> you might be asking, all right, Garrett, what does that have to do with whether Christian parents should send their kids to public schools? What does that have to do with Japan finding 7,000 more islands than they thought they had? What does this have to do with Exodus? <laughs> what are you going on about? What in the world? I'll tell you. I'll tell you why I think that this is an important consideration. One, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. When our children for generations have been sent to be indoctrinated in all manner of godlessness with the promise that you will get acceptance socially, you will get the approval of your fellow man as a result, and that your child will get a decent job. Never mind whether either of those things actually come true when they're not being taught that the fear of God going before them would be a benefit, that that would help them to be wiser and to live a life that pleases God. When they're not taught that that is even a consideration, in fact, in many cases, seeking God's approval is put as a secondary value to seeking the approval of man. We seek God's approval because we want to seek the approval of man instead of the other way around. We should remember that people do have other gods before God. They do take God's they do, they do take God's name in vain. They do not honor their father and mother. They do murder. They do commit adultery. They do steal. They do bear false witness. They do covet. God wouldn't have to say, you shall not and you shall, if it were to be assumed that this is just how we always behave. We always act according to the basics of what God says is good and evil. That we bristle even at being reminded of the categories of good and evil, I think, deserves a reminder of what Reagan warned about in his evil empire speech to the National Association of Evangelicals. When he says he thinks old screw tape reserves his energies and his attentions, especially for Christians and for the church, that should inform our attitude as well, I dare say. 
regarding TGC, regarding Big Eva. I urge you, he said in his speech, 1983, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely declaring yourselves above it all and labeling both sides equally at fault. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong, good and evil. Now loop in January 6th, not in some far-flung foreign country, not in a communist Chinese context, not in Putin's Russia, here in our nation's capital, here in the United States of America. The footage that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, gave to Tucker Carlson, 40,000 hours of video from that day, shows Capitol Police escorting, and I don't mean arresting and escorting from the building. I mean escorting like tour guides through the Capitol building, the so-called QAnon shaman. This was made for TV, that you have this guy dressed up with a buffalo hat and his face painted like an American flag, carrying a spear with the American flag on it. The footage looks a lot like he was an actor or he was a pawn. The desire was that he would provide a photo op and fodder for Democrats and for moderate Republicans. A certain Capitol Police officer, Brian Sicknick, we've been told again and again by the mainstream media and by Democrats that he was slain, he was murdered by the rioters, he was hit in the head with a fire extinguisher. When he is said to have been killed outside the building was earlier in the timeline than when footage shows him walking around inside the Capitol building. The D.C. Office of the Chief Medical Examiner ruled that Sicknick died of natural causes, by the way, per a statement U.S. Capitol Police released April 19th, 2021. And this is all to say we've been lied to. We've been lied to and that to the end of silencing conservative Americans who think that they should be regarded as free citizens of this country. If this can be so distorted, so lied about to achieve political ends, political goals, how could we in good conscience send our children as Christians to be taught in the government schools? in the public schools. How could we in good conscience do that? From a biblical standpoint, I don't think it can be defended or supported. From a common sense standpoint, I don't think it can be defended or supported. From a historical tradition as Americans, I don't think it can be supported. From a political standpoint, given what we are increasingly finding to be the case, and I think this is the reason why Democrats were so upset at the idea that McCarthy would give Tucker Carlson this footage, it's really hard to argue with video evidence. Why do we have security cameras? Anyways, if you can't review the security camera footage. But we're all just supposed to accept that conservative Americans should be silenced in the public square, driven from public office, removed from important positions of authority and influence in churches and corporations, in schools and universities, 
in their communities on the claim that they're insurrectionists, that they are lawless. It's evil. It's not just unpleasant and uncomfortable. It's evil. And we need to be able to call it evil. Or what would we say? We're going to look at the Ten Commandments, for instance, and we're going to say, okay, well, God said, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. But if somebody does these things, well, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to get into that. We don't want to address that. If only one side is ever able to cast aspersions and weave insinuations about the other, the first to state their case seems correct until the other comes and examines them. But as soon as the other comes and examines and says, well, wait a second, let's review that footage. Actually, you are bearing false witness against your neighbor. That's a sin. Actually, you are stealing. That's a sin. People do steal, by the way. And when they steal, they're not usually, not typically, open about it and honest about it. You stole that. No, I didn't. What do they do? They sneak. They plan. They conspire. That is to say, people do plot to do evil things. Sometimes when they murder, they don't do it in a moment of passion. Their blood was up. They got a little carried away, lost control. Sometimes, according to Exodus 20 to 21, they lie in wait. They plan. They take their victim in cunning. Even to covet, even to want what does not belong to you and to be envious and jealous of your neighbor for Anything that he has that you don't have is a sin. And yet, what is the democratic platform? It is to get you to vote for them because you should want what your neighbor has. And if you don't get it, well, then that's oppression. That's an injustice. And somebody says, well, conservatives do that too, right? They want freedom. They see their their neighbor has freedom and they want freedom. So they're coveting their neighbor's freedom. No, no. I want my own freedom because I shouldn't be treated like a slave, I want my own freedom to speak because I shouldn't be treated like a slave. I want my own freedom, like Moses was sent to Pharaoh to command him to grant to the children of Israel so that I may serve the Lord in the wilderness, if that's where he calls me to. That's not coveting. What is coveting is if somebody runs for office and they say, well, you live next to a guy who's got a nice big house. You actually deserve that nice big house. He didn't earn that. Unless it turns out in the particulars that he literally did steal it, what we are being taught is to covet. And that's not, well, everybody's to blame. That is not, well, nobody's perfect. We cannot afford to remove ourselves from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. And I'm still reading this book, the peacemaker about Ronald Reagan's presidency, Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and the World on the Brink by William Inbaden. I will tell you more about it once I get all the way through, but suffice to say for right now, there were a lot of moderate, winsome Christians, pastors included, who, when Reagan was president, were very unsettled by the idea that we would call the Soviet Union evil, that we would call them an evil empire, that Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire, where there was persecution of Christians and all political dissent, but Christians in particular, Reagan made that 
a focus of his administration to have Christians released if they were arrested on false charges, being detained without a fair trial, without due process under the Soviet Union. Because that should be a contrast. If we would be blessed by God, that should be a contrast between us and a communistic state. Or what will we say? We'll say, well, if there's persecution, God will be glorified in that. And so don't call for an end to persecution. To that, I would say, what do you mean? Don't call those who are doing the persecuting of Christians in the church to repentance? I thought we were supposed to be about the gospel. How do you have the gospel without calls for repentance? Repent is all through the gospels. It's all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or what will we say? God called Israel out of Egypt and then said, just do whatever you want and I'll forgive you because you're my people. No. Or what will we say? That in the New Testament, Christ comes, lives a sinless life, is arrested on false charges, tried in a kangaroo court, flogged, then crucified, dies and is buried. And so now the church just does whatever we want. And it's all the same, as long as you're intentional about it. Yes, intentionality is good, but is that the best we can do? As long as you're intentional about it, it doesn't really matter what you decide, what you do. It's all the same. There are no evil choices here. The only evil choices here are to say that there is an evil choice that some make, that many make, that they should be called to repentance. The only evil choice here is to say, even to your fellow Christian, that is not good. The thing that you are doing is not good. He gives more grace, but we don't sin that grace might abound all the more. God forbid. By no means, Paul writes. Jen Wilkin, I should note, I thought I had heard that name before when I first started watching this Good Faith Debates from TGC. I thought I recognized the name. And I did a little bit of searching, a little bit before I realized and remembered. She's the one who, as a Bible teacher, that's how TGC describes her. A few years back, she made headlines talking about how a woman every 28 days or so is reminded by her body's menstrual cycles that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. She understands the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in a special way. You're really going to put her forward as the spokesperson for Christian parents in America sending their kids to public schools? Really? Really? You know, I was asked here recently, and I won't say who asks me, but I was asked, what do I do when I misspeak? You know, somebody takes something I've said out of context, perhaps, or maybe I really did say the wrong thing, or I didn't say all of what I should have said, the broader context of what would have made more true my statement. How do I respond? And here's what I do. I don't record and upload live. If I misspeak, if I accidentally burp or cough or sneeze while I'm recording, I pause, I go back through, and I select and delete what it is that I just messed up on whenever possible. So you're not even going to know that I made a mistake in the final version. But then I listen back through, and I try to listen back through immediately after posting. I get it published to Anchor. Anchor distributes to other platforms. I listen through as soon as I possibly can. Sometimes it's not possible to listen immediately, but as soon as I can, I'm going to. And 
I'm going to listen for if I said anything that I can't defend or justify, anything that I think would be more harm to you than good. And as I need to, I will, while listening, stop, go in, edit the audio on Anchor, select the bit that I find offensive, and delete it. Occasionally, somebody will come to me and they'll say, well, what about this? I heard your podcast the other day, and what about this? And have you considered this other thing? And I don't know if that's quite correct, or I don't know if I agree with this. And when I get those kinds of comments back, depending on if they do reframe or correct something that I have said, or if I need to add a little bit more, I'm going to follow up in the future and say, you know, I don't know that that was precisely how I should have worded that. Or my friend brings up a really good point, and I should add that to my remarks from the other day. Maybe I overstated the case. Maybe I wasn't even considering this other thing. What do we do when the premise of an institution is flawed? What do we do when the presupposition at the foundation level is off the mark and it's bearing a lot of bad fruit and it has been for decades? Do we shrug and we say, well, I, you know, we don't want to offend anybody by calling them to repentance? If they're offended by calls to repentance, then maybe what's at stake here is not the approval of God if we call them to repentance anyways, and they're offended. Is God going to disapprove if we call stiff-necked people to repentance and they get offended and they're upset? Is God going to disapprove of that? On the contrary. That story that Reagan told of a man who had spoken about raising his children under communist rule, saying that he loves his children more than anything, he loves his daughters more than anything, but he would rather that they die believing in Christ than be raised by the Soviets to disbelieve and die in their old age not knowing Christ. Is that our mindset? Is that our attitude? These are important questions to ask, and if they're not being asked, then I don't think that this is a good faith debate. I think what is really desired earnestly more than anything is affirmation. If we're not asking those kinds of questions— and we're not permitted to ask those kinds of questions because they might be offensive. Then I say, are we actually calling for repentance when we ought to, when God's word is clear, when the circumstances make it evident that the shoe fits? God forbid, let it not be said of us. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.